0: before we get started today i just wanted to let you know there will be several websites mentioned throughout the course of this podcast those links can be found in the description below so please if at any point during this podcast you find something that makes a lot of sense for you or would be a good connection go down to the description click the link and do a little bit more research about some of these great organizations and opportunities enjoy the podcast welcome to the radiation research society my name is john early today i am going to be interviewing several very important people We'll be starting here. Please introduce yourself and tell us what you do.
1: My name is Eric Bernhardt. I'm the chief of the radiotherapy development branch at the National Cancer Institute.
2: My name is Andrea DiCarlo. Everyone calls me Andy. And I'm a program officer and contracting officers representative, uh, which means I do grants and contracts at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. I'm in the Radiation Nuclear Countermeasures Program, and I've been there since 2004. Very
3: cool. And I'm Janice Huff. I'm the Deputy Element Scientist for NASA's Space Radiation Element, which is part of the Human Research Program. I um, basically work on development of research plans and strategies for the element to um, basically help our astronauts get into space one day and be safely protected against radiation.
0: Very exciting. Funding makes the world go round and everyone, especially in the scientific community, is always trying to figure out how do we keep our science moving forward, how do we do things. What kind of scientific projects are, are you seeing in your organizations at this time? Well, we're
1: seeing a, a wide variety of scientific projects in, um, at the NCI. Um, our program, the Radiation Research Program, covers um, in, in the radiation sciences the physics, the chemistry the medicine and the biology. So we are covering everything from um, developing new techniques of imaging for radiotherapy to developing new modalities of radiation therapy uh, in particular now the particles. Um, In the chemistry we're looking at developing new everything from new ligands for radionuclide therapy to um, the very basic Uh, chemistry of radiation DNA damage and in biology we're looking at everything from tumor oxygenation and um, microenvironment including uh, immune responses after radiation, normal tissue protection which overlaps with what Andy's doing, um, oxidative stress and its impact both on normal tissues and tumors. Uh, We're trying to develop biomarkers looking at gene expression Um, circulating tumor DNA and uh, looking at both intrinsic and adaptive immunity and how those impact on the radiation response um, including microbiome effects.
2: Yeah I think the immunology and the microbiome are becoming even um, greater interest now because the science in that area is just really kind of exploding but yeah um, yeah, and I think you know Eric pointed out there are areas of overlap and I'm sure once Janice talks about her program you'll see that there's the, the underlying science is, is very similar across all the different agencies in terms of our research interests, but um, I can tell you a little bit about NIAD's program. Um, so, we've been tasked by Health and Human Services to be concerned with the civilian populations following a radiological or nuclear public health emergency, so these are um, you know, either accidents or terrorist-type uh, incidents that we want to be considering um, and protecting the civilian population. So, we differ from DOD, who also has these medical countermeasure programs, in that they know when they're going to be putting their troops into harm's way so they can look at drugs that might um, be used ahead of time and also they have the ability to pre-screen their soldiers so they know, you know, they may may be able to do, for example, genetic predisposition work so they know who might be more more or less sensitive to radiation. We don't have that luxury so we have to look at um, drugs that can be considered in a concept of operations that includes uh, mass chaos, Um, public health emergencies usually mean you have to have quick and easy routes of administration, Um, drugs that you're given, um, probably won't be getting to the scene. The, The earliest we believe is about 24 hours post exposure. So you really have to look at things that are coming on board when a lot of the damage has already occurred in the cells. So I think that makes the bar a little higher in terms of figuring out what drugs you could do. But we also have two other parts of our program. We look at biodosimetry approaches, which are ways to assess the body's biological response to radiation. I think the whole research community is trying to go beyond dose and looking at biodose. So you and I might be in the same area when an incident happens. We may have received the same dose, but our biological response to that dose can be very different. So we wanna understand how the biological response to the dose and the clinical symptoms that you present allow physicians to triage you into different um, treatment groups. Like you're okay, you, you go home, you, you might have gotten a little bit of radiation, but you're gonna be fine. And then we really need to concentrate on this group of people. Um, so we do that biodosimetry funding. And then we also have um, radionuclide decorporation work that we fund, which is if you've internalized a radioactive Um, element, you need to have ways to get that out of your body because the nature of that radiation is that once it's internalized it's giving a high dose of radiation to all the tissues where it finds itself so we we work on those three areas so it's a medical countermeasure development for post-exposure treatment and mitigation of radiation injuries and that incorporates all the different organ systems um, also the biodosimetry which you mentioned and finally the radionuclide decorporation so that's our program in general um, and since 2004 we've been funding as I mentioned, grants, contracts, a lot now we do cooperative agreements because that allows us to work really closely with the investigators, make sure they're um, on the right path to, uh, to moving their drugs and approaches forward.
0: Sounds like a lot of new science is being implemented there, so it really changing stuff up.
3: Yeah, all the programs, definitely. Cool. Yeah. cool.
0: James, what's happening over on your end?
3: Um, as I was saying earlier, the um, space radiation element is part of the human research program, and um, that's the program at NASA that's basically looking at all of the health, human health aspects of space travel. So, um, things like closed environments. When you're when you're considering being out beyond um, low Earth orbit, when you're considering a Mars mission, you're you're far from Earth. The the ability to get home is um, not the same as how we have it now on the International Space Station. So there's isolation, confinement, microgravity effects, um, harsh, harsh environment in that you have to take all of your resources with you. So the Human Research Program is developing the countermeasures and the, doing the basic research required in order to ensure that the astronauts are safe when, the, when we do these exploration class missions. So the program I work for, the um, space radiation element, we're focused on understanding the health effects of galactic cosmic rays and uh, solar particle events on humans. And these are um, radiation types or qualities that we don't see normally on the ground, so except for in a particle accelerator um, or in a radiotherapy with heavy ion type situation. So they cause unique health effects and um, so the program is really focused on understanding how are they different from x-rays or gamma rays that we encounter on the ground. And, and another may, main difference is the fact that out in space it's a chronic exposure. So um, it's not an acute blast type situation. It's a chronic, everyday, low, very, very low dose rate exposure to these heavy particles with potential for intermittent exposure to a large solar particle event. So, um, we overlap in the solar particle yeah, event the where the dose rate's where, really important. Yes, too, a lot yes. Of the effects. Where acute effects can happen, the acute radiation syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope that that can be c- controlled by shielding, but we have to be prepared and we sure. look um, to the work that you guys do in that area to help us identify what kind of drugs and um, mitigation strategies we can use. Um, so, not to let me get back on point. So we we have four main risk areas quickly. We, we do the um, radiation carcinogenesis, so that's long-term health risk of developing cancer. Uh, we look at degenerative tissue risks. so that's the main focus right now is cardiovascular health following radiation exposure, and also we're very interested in the effects, chronic effects on the immune system of the of galactic cosmic rays. Um, we look at central nervous system health effects, so both in-flight as well as um, late neurodegenerative changes that may happen, and then finally the acute radiation syndromes from solar particle events. So it's a pretty broad portfolio, um, basic research and then focusing really on uh, mitigation strategies right now.
0: Um, When you're dealing with science that reaches into so many different categories, particle bombardment, radiation absorption, um, is it a challenge to really um, be able to stay on top of all this, to be knowledgeable of the grants sort of that delicate balance between idealism and pragmatism when they come across your table?
3: Well, you know you get to know we don't have a we don't have a big huge funding portfolio because we're pretty small compared to some of the other programs. So it's it's not really that hard and we have very defined things that we're trying to get done. so I think you know it, it's it might be a little difficult to cross, cross over the dis- different disciplines. But we have experts on our staff that um, are focused on each of those discipline areas. So that, that we work as a team and that is really helpful. So.
1: That's true of all our programs. I think we have different people with different expertise. But I think one of the things you can see is that there is a lot of common biology between the different programs, um, which gives opportunities for grantees who are looking at a particular aspect of radiation biology to uh, submit grants um, to any of these programs as long as they are very careful to target the eventual utility of Absolutely. the uh, of the application. So for us it's clinical and we could be doing chronic radiation with systemic radionuclide therapy, we could be looking at flash radiation which would be much more very high to rate. A, uh, right, to a nuclear a nuclear detonation. Yeah. So. Um, and those are used clinically. So the the biology differs between those different dose rates but between um, funding agencies
0: uh, we're all accepting of all of these biologies. Interesting, so there's a lot of commonality in the mechanisms, is sure. that right? I think the
2: savvy researchers understand that and they have funding from all of us. So they may have a particular pathway that's been implicated in radiation injury and it would work for the normal tissue injury in terms of when you're undergoing radiotherapy. You have those, those radiation um, beams have to travel through normal tissue often to get to the the target. So you have to protect the normal tissue there. You guys have the same issues and um, it might be a pathway that's Play in all of them and I think actually even more so now than before we have more commonality with NASA because I know that NCI is getting into more of these heavy ion yes. therapies we're getting into more neutron considerations in terms of mixed field radiations so I think it's going to continue to grow in terms of areas of overlap and I know when our program started so we're the late ones to the party we we were in 2004 and we really stood on the shoulders of the giants at NCI so when we first came in we were stealing from the clinic Uh, routinely um, because there were so many things that were showing promise in radiation therapy, normal tissue protection, so we started testing those and, and we continue to have an interest in repurposing things that are either licensed or in the clinic, um, and I know that NASA is also looking for the repurposing. So Absolutely. Your, things that you you already know have a safety, established safety prote- profile that can be then used yes. for your astronauts. Yes,
3: that's one one thing that the difference for some, our situation is that we're dealing with really super fit, healthy people who may never have any health effects from the radiation exposure. So you have to if you're going to administer something to prevent a, a, a chemo preventive agent it has to be very safe you have to be able to take it but you know it has to be easily taken stable over a long-term mission up to three years so we we're looking on the chemo preventive side of of those kind of drugs for, for mitigators um, to protect the astronauts and also we want things that have already been tried and true would be more helpful for us so not probably new types of drugs at this point.
2: But like the growth factors and those kinds of...
3: For protection from acute radiation syndrome, yeah. Yeah, so I'm talking the acute radiation syndromes for an unplanned solar part or an unexpected solar particle event would be one class of things that we could consider having in the med kit for the astronauts. And then the other is these longer-term decrease the cancer risk, decrease the chronic um, degenerative tissue risks types of drugs.
2: I think the cost benefit ratio for our programs is different for NCI because obviously you're talking with patients talking about patients who are in many cases, quite ill. So you have to balance you know, the use of a drug. I think that some um, vehicles for the drugs that you guys use in the clinic and the drugs themselves, the safety profiles are yes. a little bit different in terms of we're looking to give these to pediatrics, geriatrics, um, all, the entire population, where yours is not that you don't treat these populations, yeah, but you know, this is something that that they're sick and they require these treatments. So we always have to think about in terms of normal, healthy volunteer kind of. Well,
0: and then compare it yeah. to like an astronaut who's as fit as fit can be. It's like that's a very different. Yeah, coordinate. you don't have
2: children in your program, <laughs> right? So. Right.
0: But there's still there's still a lot of um,
1: uh, benefit that can be derived in the clinical setting from some of these drugs that have been developed in Andy's program, mm-hmm. as long. But we have the additional concern that. Uh, the protection has to be specific to the normal tissue or administered in such a way that it is not going to promote the survival of the cancer cells that are under treatment. So that's another.
2: So we don't have that that constraint. You can also have treatments at any time, pre-exposure, or post-exposure. Yes. Yeah. But I think that what the scientific community might not recognize is that there's a whole lot of coordination that goes on behind the scenes across our different programs. So I know that um, NIAID has a memorandum of understanding signed with NASA. So we are we also um, previously had one with the National Space Biomedical Research Institute. So we have these efforts underway behind the scenes to make sure that the science that we are working on, not only are our partner agencies aware of it, but we also are together in the planning process. And You know, whenever we have when we have initiatives, we put them out there and we say, hey, we're working in this. Do you have an interest in being involved in this particular program? And and we actually fund intramural laboratories at the NCI. So although our mission spaces are different, we are not um, so much concerned with the late carcinogenic effects of radiation injury. It's not that they're not important. It's just that we've been sort of tasked with the immediate and the, what we call the dear, the delayed effects of acute radiation exposure, but we don't really go, we leave sort of the cancer space to NCI uh, because we feel like they have the expertise to be able to best fund and manage those kinds of portfolios.
0: Going down the table now, what is something that you wish young grant writers knew when they were submitting applications? What is something you wish that they put in or had in their applications so it didn't just become immediately toxic?
1: Well, the first thing is good narrative flow. The second thing is a very um, tight statistical plan both in the design and in the analysis of the experiments. And the third thing is that no grant should ever come out of a department without having been reviewed by um, that junior investigator's mentor or mentors. Um, There's no point in submitting an application that hasn't had prior review because you can't make any mistakes under the current funding climate.
2: Break that down into two points. One, I would say that I don't think a lot of young investigators realize how accessible NIH program officers are. I'm sure this extends to NASA as well. So again, the the savvy um, researchers who have been in the field for a while know that if they see an RFA and they have a question about it, they contact the program officer. So I can't even tell you how many times people um, were have told me, "Oh, I didn't want to call. I I didn't want to." bug you guys. And I mean, that's really what my job um, entails is interfacing with the research community, not only to give them guidance, but also to find out what's up you know, what's up and coming. That's why these meetings are so important because I get to see everything that's happening, maybe just not in my field, but I can make connections, collaborations across the researchers. Um, and also I can make sure that they see that we are very approachable, uh, I, especially in my program, we, we are very outward facing. So I would say, one, you know, we're in my institute, we're um, allowed to kind of take a look at specific aims and talk with people about do we think their approaches are in, in the right direction, Do they are, are what they're proposing really going to be responsive, because you don't want to have someone waste a lot of time and energy putting together these enormous, you know, this enormous effort of putting together a grant application when really what they're doing is not something you think you can draw relevance to your program. So one, talk to us before that point, and even if it's an unsolicited one, and you just have an idea, if it's not something in our program, I've I send people to Eric and Pat Persano over at NCI. You know, they send people to us, so we really we know each other, and we can do that. So, in terms of the actual application, I feel like sometimes the right expertise isn't on there, not just in terms of statistics, but in terms of dosimetry. Radiation is is such a steep dose response curve, at least the radiation that we're looking at, and if you're off by a little bit in your dosimetry, you you could be doing a, a whole different dose than what you're aware of. You know, people often will just say, oh, in the literature, they use six gray. I'm going to use six gray. But they don't understand that there's so many confounders, not only within an institute, within a vendor, within a, how you provide water to the animals, when you feed them, when you give your drug. It's 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 it, there's a lot going on. So really having a senior person, and it's pretty obvious to a reviewer, even though you have the right people named we can tell when they didn't read it, because you can look at it and go, that PI would have never let that go out the door that way. So I think that um, naming people on the application who are right, giving them effort, because you get what you pay for. So these 0% things I think are also not especially well received by review committees in general. Uh, Now I'm not review but I've sat in a lot of programs so that's what I would tell them. Get the right people and have them actually look at it before you submit it. And Andy brought up
1: a really important point in terms of the physics. Um, At the NCI we are pushing more and more for traceable dosimetry. We have a um, cooperative agreement now that mandates that all the dosimetry be NIST traceable. Mm And having a physicist on your grant is never a bad thing, because, it, as Andy said, the, a sixth gray is not sixth gray is not sixth grade, depending on how you give it the setup, and the uncertainty can be greater in the dose can be un- greater than the effect you 're looking at interesting
0: Janice, on your side of the table, where do you see like some, if, what is something you wish young investigators knew when they submitted stuff?
3: Well, one of the most obvious things is you need to read the solicitation. You need to you know really focus on what's being asked for, and then, in your grant application, tell the tell in the proposal, tell how you're how, how you're um, answering the questions. And be very clear because sometimes we see proposals, and it's so obvious that they haven't really looked at what we're asking for. Mm-hmm. And if you force yourself to have to, have a paragraph, this addresses X, Y, and Z from the solicitation, then you you it you will be thinking along the lines and you need to do that so we that's one of the I mean it sounds obvious but I, um, it's not no, necessarily uh, obvious.
2: And look at the review criteria. I know NIH, yes. we're, we have review criteria. I've had people tell me they only read through the beginning part of what we're interested in, and then they stop. But we oftentimes will, like, handwrite sections of the review criteria. And that's what you're being judged based yes. upon, these these questions that we want the reviewers to focus on. So a lot of people, times people don't go that far, because these are, these are monsters, these RFAs. They have all of this required information that's in there. It's really difficult to get bogged down. So yeah. you just sit there with a highlighter and just things that you have to make sure that you address.
1: There's a lot of boilerplate in those uh, announcements, and you have to tease out the parts that are yeah. important. We write the important parts, and the other people put in the uh, sure. yeah.
0: the boilerplate. But uh, even the important parts can get a little dull to go through, but it's very important. Yeah. I was gonna ask if they're, based on your response, it seems like, is this an issue in the grant world where people sort of Frankenstein their project to try and put it into as many grants as possible? Cut and paste areas. Oh, yes.
2: yes. <laughs> so you'll be reading something on c- compound A, and then, you know, somewhere in the middle of they start talking about compound X, and you're like, what is, oh, they cut and pasted it from yeah, somewhere it's, else. It's yeah, it's very
3: obvious when that happens, yes. so.
2: It's stressful putting these together so you understand mm-hmm. it, and after reading something 10 times, you you know, trust me, we write the RFAs and we miss things in our own RFAs, yeah. so.
1: So that, yeah. that brings up an, another point is that you really have to be very careful to pay attention to the, all the details in the grant. We've had grants that propose these statistical analyses that were rather complex. The statistician biosketch was missing and that was pointed out by reviewers um, having uh, a biosketch that is not updated, or a, um, a research statement in the biosketch that is not applicable to that particular proposal but is applicable to another, that's got... Um, there, there are a lot of little details that have to be very carefully addressed in all of these applications. Yeah, As I and said, I, there's, no, there's no room for error anymore.
3: No. And, though, and I call those things low-hanging fruit. Because, you know, if, if you might have the best science and a wonderful proposal, but if there's things that are easily picked out by a reviewer, that it's just, those will be picked out and those will be found, errors like that. So don't leave any of that for, for the review team. Be perfect, you know.
1: Yeah, and that, that's also um, something about the writing is that you want to guide the reviewer down your thought process rather than have the reviewer go down their own thought process about how the grant goes. That's so the if best you written pose one, if you, they, a you, question you read something
2: and, and you're like, you I answer wonder about it. this, yeah. and the next paragraph they answer it, it's so gratifying. So if you're reading you're going, oh gee, I wonder about, you know, what did they test this? Next paragraph, we tested this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: They're like going, you
2: go. Yay. So there's a real art
0: form to writing an engaging uh, grant application. there are some, oh, you,
2: there are some really masters in the field out there yeah. that um, I mean they're doing great science but they're also really eloquent about how they put it forward and you know and if things like if you have a particular aim that if it fails the whole thing falls apart people don't put a t- alternative approaches in there they don't look at they don't take a serious look at what the risks are involved and what their they're um, proposing, and if you don't point it out, the reviewers know them, they're gonna point them out. So if you say, we understand this could be an issue, however, to, you know, in case that's a problem, here's how we're gonna get around that, or here's another thing we could do, and it like, lets them know that you've really thought it through completely. So.
3: Yeah, right, that's a very good point, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, this is kind of turning into like Grantsmanship 101, but. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so.
0: um, where do you see the climate for radiation science evolving in the next few years? What do you, based on the grants you receive and based on the stuff coming down the pipeline, what type of science do you see evolving? What do you see coming?
1: I see a lot of particle work, and I think that's across the board for all three of us, but clinically, um, basic questions about the biology, the chemistry, and the physics of particles um, at the clinical sphere is going to be very important. Um, And there are some things also Uh, uh, systemic radionuclide therapy is doing very well and I think will continue to do very well in the clinical sphere. Um, Imaging, um, radiomics, trying to tease out uh, from your clinical samples the the eventual response, so predictive and, and prognostic biomarkers, those are all things that are very important.
2: Yeah, I think I mentioned previously immunology. Even just at this meeting here in Chicago, there's immunology all over the place. So I think that that's really experiencing a Um, I wouldn't say resurgence, but that's really coming to the forefront. Uh, From our program, we've given out grants. Uh, We've awarded grants recently in the areas of vascular injury because we're now starting to think about multi-organ dysfunction and the more global um, effects from radiation. I I think we did have to approach them as separate um, organ systems of damage, always recognizing that they were all tied together. So for us, I think that's an area. We've also recently put out some uh, funding in cellular therapies, Um, So, I think that those are areas, uh, I think also for us, we're we're thinking we need to start moving into some of the special populations in a more meaningful way. NIH has come out with this, you have to cover both genders in your studies, but we're also thinking, you know, for some of these things for which we've actually established the adult models, maybe we need to start getting into some of the pediatric models, the geriatric models, because those are in our population. Um, And in terms of... Uh, I'm I'm at liberty to talk about um, some future funding that we're looking at into FY20. The NIAID is very transparent in their um, funding and so we can we can talk about that at some point too.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say let's give Janice a chance to shout in on this but then I would like to come back and talk about that. That's very interesting that you know what's coming down the pipe in 2020. Mm -hmm. So Janice, what are you seeing in science?
3: Well, I agree about the immune system. That is something that we're definitely interested in. and uh, we, we know from spaceflight that there's, there's changes in the immune system just from being up in, in microgravity. So how that plays and um, you know synergizes or interacts with radiation effects on the immune system is really something that we need to be focused on and more so in the future as we um, continue to do our studies. We're also uh, interested in the microbiome and how that's impacting all of the risks. And that is also something that when you're locked in a tin can, um, you know, there's changes in that. Your diet's changing and how how does that evolve and uh, influence potential health risks? So those are two main areas. Uh, NASA in particular right now, <clears throat> excuse me, our program has a big effort to Um, address the dose rate issue and so we're upgrading our facilities at the NASA Space Radiation Lab um, at Brookhaven National Lab on Long Island to be able to do chronic exposures so be able to run that accelerator um, on a daily basis to give small packets of heavy ions to um, our model systems so that's a big big project um, ongoing right now for our program. Cool.
0: Really opens up the doors on some of the science. You can do that. Sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Extra yeah. yeah. Yep. And, and just real fast, I have to call that. Was, that. was that a David Bowie reference I heard in there?
2: Rocket um, Man or something? No, I heard yeah. floating in a tin can. Oh, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> you have all the best lyrics at <laughs> your disposal. Yeah. Major Tom. Uh,
0: all right, Andy, hopping back to you. You said that just, you have some perspective on
2: 2020. Right, so whenever a uh, researcher um, Program officers at NIAID have ideas about something they'd like to, they, a research direction they'd like to go in, um, we're required to go before our council and it's a public video cast of the council meeting where we present these concepts of things that we're thinking about for out year funding. I know, um, like, I'm not sure, NASA, they're probably very similar to us. It's a bureaucracy, it takes a long time. So we actually do three-year out planning. So right now we're talking with our internally about things that we want to put out and 2021, Um, but in terms of 2020, we go to our council, these are presented, and then uh, NIAID actually has a website where you can type in NIAID council clearance, concept clearance, and you go to the website and it tells you every concept that's been cleared at every council. Um, for all the different divisions. We're in the Division of Date, D-A-I-T, so you can go to the website, you can click on any of the council dates. Uh, if you click on our um, June council date, you see that we presented three concepts that are um, going to be re renewed. There's not really a lot of surprises there. Our large centers program is um, going to undergo a recompete for funding in, in FY20. We're also um, looking to pull our radiation survivor cohort, which we're extremely proud to be um, working with since 2005. We, we take monkeys that that have survived radiation exposures of all different dose levels, um, males and females, all different ages. We send them down to live out their days happily um, and we can monitor them for delayed effects and, and late effects. And so it's a really tremendously valuable research population um, so that's going to be pulled out of our centers program to be kind of more accessible to the radiation community in general so we're going to be doing that. We've got a, a bio initiative on there um, and some contracts. So they're, they're sort of the things that we always do but um, the fact that they're out there and you can read about them. Cool. And you
0: said the uh, public meetings were videocast? Were yes. they live streamed?
2: Yeah they're live streamed. So and their videocast. They just, do they just go to your so website? So you could go to the NIH videocast. I think it's videocast.nih.gov, and you can just search for um, you know, NIAID Council, mm-hmm. and you can pull it up. You can go to June and see me on video there, too. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, so the program officers who, who design and create these RFAs actually bring them to the council we present and we talk to them. But um, the last thing I'd love to put a plug in for, because I know we've been talking for a while, is that um, the NIAID website, again, we are also, we like to serve as a clearinghouse for all kinds of funding opportunities, and we have a a way for investigators to click on the little small envelope that's at the bottom of any NIAID website. Um, You click on the envelope, it'll take you to a page, you say subscribe now, you give them your email address, you confirm it you can do a password, you don't have to do that, but then you can click a checkbox for radiological and nuclear program. And anytime we have a solicitation, within 24 hours of it being released, we send an email blast out to everybody. So that's how we inform the research community. Of course, they show up on our website as well, but then you have to go and figure it out that it's there. So I would encourage people who have interest in our our mission space to go onto our website, click that little envelope, and uh, get signed up to receive. Them. Exactly.
0: That's a, that's a great mechanism to help garner information and help you know align people who really might be potential um, future grants.
2: Yeah, yeah. You you don't even have to use your work. You can use your Gmail address any way you want. Uh, you can send it to both in case there's. Is yes.
0: there any program, Eric, Janice? Is there any program you'd like to speak about that your organizations do that might be helpful to people who are out looking?
2: Or how you outreach? How well, you we outreach.
1: we have um, we have a website as well, Radiation Research Program on um, and it has just been updated for the first time in a few years, <laughs> so it's got um, a significant amount of information about grants, uh, applying for grants, the program itself, the people in the program and their expertise, how you can reach them. Um, I would also like to call out the SBIR program, which is a small business innovative research yeah, program. We, have that too. we are very successful in getting concepts through the SBIR program for everything from high-throughput screening, uh, systemic radionuclide therapy, um, biomarkers, uh, clonogenic assays. I mean, they're, there are point. all kinds yeah, of different. Very active small yes, business. Yes, and community. that is congressionally mandated funding. So they have a, a fair amount of money I would encourage the investigators, well, I would give an encouraging note, and that is that our research funding in the last fiscal year uh, for FY18 has started to go up as opposed to going down. And we are also developing um, RFAs in the program that will provide dedicated funding for radiation uh, studies. But that is too early to talk about. <laughs> and I think
2: FY twenty starts October next year. Yeah, so it's um, it really sneaks up on you.
0: Janice, do you guys have an outreach program or anything like that?
3: Well, I can say that we have a one stop shopping website for all the grant proposals that are agency wide. It's called Nspires. Um, could, uh, could you spell that? I don't n s p i r e s dot gov. Thank you. And that's where all of the research. Research announcements are are posted, so you can get on their mailing list and um, have an update every time there's a new solicitation. Awesome.
2: Yeah. Like and one last resource. Oh, NIAID really also, also, if you just type into Google NIAD, S-O-P, NIAID SOP, N-I-A-I-D-S-O-P. there are there are prob- hundreds of pages that talk about the standard op- standard operating procedures that are pretty much unique to NIH. Although there's some human research protections information there and ICOC information that might work for other agencies, but it's it's again, it's it's NIAID is very well known for having this public facing. Um, resource that's available, and you can let, let's say, oh, I need to change my PI. How do I do that? You just type in I at SOP, change PI. It takes you to a website. It talks about what program officers do, what grants management do, what PIs are supposed to do. It's very well laid out. So just if you if you have a question, go there first, and if you don't get the answer, call your program officer.
0: All right, we've been having a really good conversation, but it's about time to bring this to a close. Before we end this, I'd just like to thank everybody for coming in today, Janice. Andy, Eric, you guys have been awesome. And we're going to end with just one little final uh, thought. We've been talking, we've been going over a ton of good science. What would you like the takeaway to be today? And we're just going to go down the table. I'll start. Don't copy and paste. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that would be my takeaway as the moderator. Don't
0: copy and paste. <laughs> Well,
1: obsessive compulsive behavior where grants are concerned is not a bad thing. The other thing um, I wanted to bring up is that there is the reporter website at the NIH uh, that allows you to look at any grant that is funded in a particular area and I think before you submit a grant you should look at that um, and see how your topic falls in with the other funded research at the NIH. That's really and, good. There's not just immunology research going on, there are some fantastic things that we heard about here at this meeting. For example, Andy, the, the person you hosted, the, the talked about um, hibernation Yeah, and that its was effects fantastic. on, um, on uh, radiation sensitivity ties in to a lot of the biology, clock proteins, and things like that that can impact radiosensitivity.
0: And that that's goes awesome. across all three programs. That's a, that's really good to know. Thank you for sharing.
2: I would say reach out early. Reach out often. Um, don't let yourself be siloed in a particular funding agency. So always be thinking about how what you're looking can flip into different areas so that you can really maximize the potential, and I think basic research is great. Obviously, it's the bread and butter of the NIH, but you really need to be thinking long-term and have a vision for what your particular target pathway can, can be in the, in the clinical community, um, you know, in the, in the NASA community, just really thinking about the end game for what you're looking at and what the possibilities are.
3: Yeah, and I want to point out one more resource. that um, The Human Research Program has a roadmap online, so um, Google NASA Human Research Program roadmap, and you will come to a website that has um, details on all the current funded projects, the evidence bases for all of the risks, so the pro, but not just space radiation, but all of the program elements risks are, are defined there. Evidence bases, tasks funded, and then some plans for future tasks. So you'll find that it's a wealth of information. Um, so go there and look at what's being done now. And then dr- um, dream big is my recommendation. Reach for the stars.
0: Well, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in today. This has been the Radiation Research Society podcast. Have a wonderful day.